Acts 9, verses 1 through 25, kind of lessened it a little bit for you guys. An encounter with Jesus, what we're looking at this morning. Jesus and the Pharisees. So the word of God reads, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying. And as he had seen in a vision, a man named Ananias come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house and laying his hands on him, he said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me in order that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priest? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Now when many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and led him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This morning, we're looking at one of Christianity's most famous conversion. And for me, when I read something like this, I think it really begs the question, well, what is conversion? What does it mean to become a Christian? And without question, the story of Saul's conversion is one of the most famous, and I believe one of the most important events in all of Christianity. Remember, Saul would go on to be known as Paul the Apostle, and it was he and his Companions who would bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, to the Gentiles. Now, <clears throat> something that we need to know about Paul, who was formerly called Saul, is that he wasn't just religious. Like when we think about conversion, when we think about converting to Christianity, Paul wasn't just, you know, religious or moral or just, you know, kind of a self righteous person. 
He was a hardline, fanatical, ultra-nationalist, super-orthodox, whoa, I almost butchered that word. I did butcher that word. Super-orthodox, Pharisaic Jew. That's who Saul of Tarsus was. I said this earlier, but he put the white nationalists that we're seeing on the East Coast, he put them to shame. This guy was a bigot, self-righteous. The Jews were the people of God. Everyone was cast out and fit for the fires of hell. The Pharisees would pray every day, God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, a woman, or a dog. That's the kind of person that Saul of Tarsus was. And he had this radical change that happened to him where he would say to the Galatians, for in Christ Jesus, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There is slave, there is no free. There's no male, there is no female. For you are all sons of God in Christ Jesus. Everyone has equal standing and equal rights, that of firstborn children before God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. How does a change like that come about? How does someone like Saul of Tarsus become the Apostle Paul who says to the churches, oh, I would be cast out from the new Jerusalem so that others might be brought in. How does somebody like that change like that? How does anyone change? Well, let's define conversion. A commentator named Knox says this, by conversion we mean the reorientation of the soul of an individual, the deliberate turning from indifference or an earlier form of piety to another, a turning which implies a consciousness that a great change is involved, that the old was wrong and the new is right. The gospel of Jesus Christ begins with these words, repent and believe the gospel, or repent the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, God's program of new creation is back on track. This is the call of the New Testament and the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is for everyone to repent, not just the bad, not just the good, not just the mediocre, but everyone everywhere to repent, to turn around, to be converted. You know, this is the radical, one of the radical differences of Christianity from every other religion. You cannot be born a Christian it cannot be passed on to you through family lineage or heritage. It is not a tribal thing. It is not a cultural club. No, everyone must be converted. Everyone must repent and believe the gospel. That is the message of Christianity, right? Now, this chapter that we're going to look at this morning, it shows <clears throat> at least five marks of true conversion, and I think that we could safely say that if these aren't evident in your life, if this hasn't taken place, these five marks, then you are not a Christian. If only some of these events or characteristics are evident, maybe you have some more looking into Jesus and the gospel to do, as well as some introspection, right, to know whether you are following the real Jesus the true Christianity of scripture. You know what I found very common in our day and age is that many people have made for themselves their own Jesus. 
There was an article about this years ago, and a pastor mockingly, you know, said, well, there's a Starbucks Jesus who drives a Prius, you know, and cares about fair trade coffee and peace on earth, right? And then, you know, you've got the CEO Jesus that everybody, you know, should work hard, capitalist Jesus, and he kind of goes through this list. But it's true, you know, every one, and it's typical of the human heart to fashion for us gods of our own thinking, of our own creation. Tim Keller calls this the Stepford God. Maybe you're familiar with that. Uh, I think the original was like back in the 60s or 70s, the Stepford Wives, right? And then there was a remake with Matthew Broderick, and some of you guys were like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Yeah, don't see it. It wasn't good. Um, but the idea, right, is that you have this spouse, and she's the perfect spouse, or he's the perfect spouse, because they never cross you. They never challenge you. They never make you change. You've got your man den. Actually, the whole house is your man den, right? Because she's just like, whatever, honey, whatever you want, right? If you have a God like that, you will never change. You will never grow. You will never become the person that you were created to be, an image bearer of God, a whole human being. And it is only through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we come into true humanity, that we come into the fullness of who God created us to be. But if you have a step for God, if you have a Jesus of your own creating and not a Jesus of the New Testament, or excuse me, a Jesus of the scriptures, then you've created a God for yourself in your own likeness and you'll never change. And so we need to look at the true Jesus. We need to look at what true conversion is so that we might know whether we are followers of the true Jesus, so that we might know that we have true Christianity, we have truly been converted. So let's look at these five ways together. Now, the first mark of true Christianity is an encounter with Jesus, an encounter with the truth of Jesus. Now, of course, it's not, probably not gonna happen like it happens here in Acts 9. If you got knocked on your butt by Jesus in the desert, there was a great light, come and talk to me afterwards, okay? I wanna hear that story. But every one of us must have an encounter with Jesus. Conversion to Christianity is not about going to church. It's not about being a good person. It really isn't. It's not about doing better. It's not about trying harder. It's not about doing, thinking about yourself and healing yourself first before you can heal others. It isn't about moralism. Of course, it does include all of those things at the same time, but conversion in Christianity happens because of a true encounter with the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I just want to look at this for a minute, and I think what we need to do is we need to contrast Saul of Tarsus with Paul the Apostle and what happened there, right? So, as I said, Saul of Tarsus is a hardline, fanatical, ultra-nationalist, super-orthodox, Pharisaic Jew. Paul the Apostle, formerly called Saul, uses the word zeal when describing his former life in Pharisaic Judaism. Now, the term zeal was associated with Phineas, and I know that Calvary Chapel people are Bible people, so you know the Old Testament, you know the story, right? Well, it's when, I think it's the book of Numbers, and it's when Moses is bringing the children of Israel through the wilderness, right? It's that 40 years of wandering, and the Midianite women come into the camp and they come in to you know, seduce the men and to lead them into idolatry, to lead them into a sexual perversion so that God will curse them, right? And this was given, this counsel was given to them by a false prophet. And so this is what happens, this is what takes place. And there's this one scene where um, there's this you know, Jewish guy and he grabs one of the Midian women and basically he walks in front of all the elders of Israel and he flaunts like basically, yeah, like we're gonna go get it on in my tent right now. Like, what do you think about that? 
And Phineas, who is a descendant of Aaron, the priest, is just like, oh, heck no, right? And he grabs the spear and he chases them down and he comes into the tent and they're getting their thing on, right? And he takes a spear and he drives it through both of them. And it says that that day, Phineas's zeal pushed back the plague and the curse of God. He saved the nation of Israel because of his zeal for the Lord. Now, this went down in the annals of history. This guy became famous. He was a zealot for the glory of God, for the nation of Israel, for the preservation of the promises of God. And so Jews throughout history, you know, thought about him. You know, it's like he was the guy, you know, like Paul Revere is kind of the guy for, you know, America. Oh, you know, the patriot, right? Like Phineas is kind of that guy. You know, later there's a story about the Maccabees. Maybe you've heard the story during the intertestamental period. The Maccabees defended, again, Israel's honor, the preservation of Israel, the glory of God. The Greeks had come in and tried to convert the Jews to Hellenistic way of living. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, you know, he's, it's told us that he slaughtered a pig on the altar of God, desecrating the temple. And so the Maccabean revolt happened, right? And it was told that they had a zeal for God, right? You know what the Maccabees also did is they went around and they slaughtered all of their Jewish brothers who had compromised the faith, who had sold out the Jewish nation. Paul says, I was like Phineas. I was like Judah Maccabee. I had a zeal for God. And look at him. He's hunting down Jews because they've gone apostate. They're following this false Messiah. They're lessening the weight of the law of Moses. They're claiming righteousness through Jesus Christ. What is this Jesus Christ? Goodness. Saul was an enemy of Christ and of Christianity. So again, what could possibly bring about this man's conversion? And again, it was an encounter with Jesus. A light brighter than the noonday sun knocks him to the ground. He hears a voice that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord, is his response. And here's what, you know, the most unexpected words. I am Jesus. Whom you are persecuting. What must have gone through this child of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, Pharisee of Pharisees, this one with zeal for God, what must have gone through his head? Jesus? No. Uh, right? Like, no, it can't be. No, you can't be Jesus. That, that, no, can't be Jesus, right? Risen in power and glory, what can it mean? Of course, he's commanded, right? Rise up, go into the city, and I'll tell you what to do. That's what's gonna happen now. Saul is left blind by the experience, and he's reduced to powerlessness and helplessness before the Lord, and he fasts for three days. Now, no doubt, during this time, Saul, I think, is thinking through those words. What does it mean? What does it mean? Jesus, risen, power and glory. Brightness, brighter than the noonday sun. What does it mean? So let's talk about that. What does it mean? Now, no doubt, seeing Jesus shine with the glory greater than the noonday sun would be enough to convert someone like you, someone like me, right? It's like, yeah, true, yep, whatever you need, yep. I'm converted, I'm done, yeah, right? 
But Saul, as I said before, was a committed Jew, committed to the one true God, committed to Yahweh, and committed to his divine revelation, the Old Testament scripture. Also, he knew about Jesus. He knew how Jesus claimed to be Messiah, but had died, not just died, but was crucified. You know, during the first century, there were many messianic pretenders, many who rose up and led the people astray, saying that they were the Christ, the anointed one, the the one to bring the promises of God to the nation, the one to deliver them from Roman tyranny. And you know what? They were slaughtered and their followers were scattered. So Paul had seen this come and go many, many times. And he knew about Jesus. He knew how he claimed to be Messiah, but he knew that he had died. And not just died again, but was crucified, right? That is super important because in terms of a Jewish understanding of Messiah, nothing could be more backward, offensive, and downright blasphemous than a crucified savior, a crucified king, son of David, nothing. You see, the Jews expected the Messiah to be God's ultimate king, the one who would usher in God's kingdom reign, unstoppable because of his power, wisdom, and anointing from God. But Jesus' life had been cut off. Not only that, he died the gruesome death of a criminal, and according to Jewish law, Jesus' crucifixion alone was evidence that he was cursed by God because the law of Moses says, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Curses everyone who hangs on a tree. That is how the Jew would view Roman crucifixion. Oh, under the curse. Under divine wrath from God. But what could this mean? Because here Jesus is. He's alive. And he is shining with glory, right? In scripture, like like this, always accompanies a theophany, which is an appearance of God. It's the Shekinah. The glory of God is shining, right? And it's Jesus. So this meant that though Jesus was cursed, he had been vindicated, justified by God. And not just justified, but given a share in God's glory. God's glory that he shares with no one, the Old Testament scriptures say. What does it mean? Well, I think that during those three days, Paul was just going over scripture. What does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? And you know what? From Paul's later writings, we understand what Paul believed that it meant, arrived at, right? What was that? Well, it could only mean one thing, that Jesus was in fact God's son. God in human flesh, his anointed one, the Christ, who bears the curse, not for his own sins, but for the sins of his people, for the sins of the world. We also know from Paul's later writings that he was seeing more and more how even he, a hardline, fanatical, ultranationalist, super orthodox, Pharisaic Jew, a zealot, right? One who worked his fingers down to the bone for the glory of God. One who did so much for God could not even keep the law himself. Remember in Romans 7, he says, I discovered the law of covetousness. Want, desire, dissatisfaction with my lot in life, whatever it might be, right? 
not believing in the goodness of God, not being satisfied in him alone, whatever, you know, those are multiple interpretations of the law of covetousness. Paul was beginning to despair of his own righteousness, his own ability to keep the law and doubt whether or not he had found, truly found favor with God, whether he would be part of God's glorious kingdom reign. So basically in layman's term, Paul had no peace, you guys. He had no rest. He actually had no hope. What was his peace? What was his rest? What was his hope? To work and work and work and work and work for the glory of God until he assured himself a place in the kingdom of God, but he could never get there. He could never arrive. And so he despairs. Remember, he says in Romans 7, oh, wretched man that I am. I've seen my heart, and I know that there's nothing outwardly I can do to cure it. Who, who can deliver me from this body of death? Paul all of a sudden abandons all that he had formerly hoped in for his righteousness, for his standing before God, for his access to the kingdom of God. All of a sudden, he's not assured. All of a sudden, he's not certain. Is it enough to be a Jew? Is it enough to be circumcised the eighth day? Is it enough to be a Pharisee of the Pharisees? Paul said, no, it's not. I'm a wretched man. Who's going to help me? Who's going to save me? My righteousness before God is like a drop in the bucket. He sees that he cannot possibly satisfy the righteous requirements of a perfectly loving, perfectly holy, perfectly just and righteous God. And neither can you. Neither can I. And then this is what he says in Romans 7. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. See, Paul comes to see that Jesus has come as a suffering Messiah to do what we or the law could never do. And Paul tells the churches this over and over and over again. Because he wants to root them in the finished work of Jesus so that they might have rest, so that they might have peace, that they might have hope, and that that hope might live out of their lives. It might manifest itself, that the kingdom of God, that the image of God, that that new way to be human might be put on display through the finished work of Jesus Christ. But I'm getting ahead of myself. This is what Paul says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Doesn't matter what your neighbor thinks about you. Doesn't matter what the Supreme Court thinks about you. Doesn't matter what you think about yourself, what your parents think about you, what anyone thinks about you. What only matters is that you have been justified by God for Jesus' sake. That is the judgment that matters. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. What is conversion? In Christianity, it is specifically this, to completely abandon what you have been living for trusting in, identifying in what you have been getting your sense of self-value and worth from and finding a whole new way of operating toward God through the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is abandoning all that you were looking to for rest, for peace, for hope, for security. 
and finding a whole new way of relating to God through Jesus Christ. That's what conversion in Christianity is, clinging to the finished work of Jesus Christ. See, Jesus Christ, the scripture tells us, lived the perfect life that each of us owe to God. And yet, yet he dies the gruesome death of a cursed cross that each of us deserve. This means now that we who trust completely in the perfect life of Jesus lived for us in his atoning death that was payment for the life we have lived, when we understand what he did, what he became for us, broken as we are, selfish as we are, insecure as we are, deceitful as we are, sinful as we are, we say, I will live for him because he lived and died for me. I will center my life on him. I love, I love the hymns. They're just like, nobody does it better, you know? Just like theological truths just put to, I don't know, bar tunes actually is what they were. <laughs> put to bar tunes, nobody does it better than that, right? Theological truth and bar tunes. Um, but here's, here's one of my favorite hymns. It says, nothing either great or small, nothing, sinner, no. Jesus died and paid it all long, long ago. It is finished, yes, indeed, finished every jot. Sinner, this is all you need. Tell me, is it not? When he from his lofty throne stooped to do and die, everything was fully done. Hearken to his cry. Weary, working, burdened one, wherefore toil you so? Cease your doing. All was done long long ago. Till to Jesus' work you cling by a simple faith. Doing is a deadly thing. Doing ends in death. So cast your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet. Stand in him, in him alone, gloriously complete. See, this is what happened to Saul. He had an encounter with Jesus Christ. And through that encounter, he had a whole new way a whole new way of operating toward God, a whole new standing. We'll see in just a moment, he had a whole new identity. He had a whole new community, he had a whole new message, and he had a new approach as well. Excuse me, a new reproach, not approach, <laughs> new reproach. The whole of Saul's life was radically changed by his encounter with Jesus, which resulted in change in every other part of his life. And so let's look now at those four other things that an encounter with Jesus brings, as soon as you answer that phone. Um, so I said, an encounter with Jesus Christ brings a new identity. A new identity, a new way of seeing yourself, a new way of relating to God. Where in the past, maybe, you were going to God and you were begging, not expecting God's goodness, not expecting God's grace, but you're bargaining with God. You're under contract with God. Hey, God, I know you created the world. I know you sustain me with your every breath, and I know that every good and perfect gift comes from you. And uh, I went to church last Sunday, so I'm really hoping, you know, that this week you'll really bless me, right? And we all do this, like, to some degree. You know, I've been faithful to my vows. I've been a good father. I've been a good husband. I've been a good friend. I've been a, you know, honest worker. And we try to negotiate terms with God. And what we're doing is we're justifying ourselves before God, Expecting that God will respond and say, oh, of course you have. Yes, and I've been watching. You are amazing. He's <laughs> like, I know God. <laughs> Thank you. And so many of us operate that way towards God, but you know what that can never do? It can never bring assurance. It can never bring rest. It 
can never bring the security that the gospel offers. See, the gospel of Jesus Christ tells us because we are clothed in Jesus, righteousness, his finished and complete work, that I have nothing to hide and I have nothing to prove. God sees me through and through. I am fully known. You know, that is one of the creepiest or like, I guess like most haunting ideas, right? Isn't our greatest fear to be fully known? Because if somebody actually knew what happens in your secret thoughts, in your deepest, darkest places of your heart, would they be your friend? Would they trust you? Would they accept you? The scripture tells us that God is not under any illusion about who we are. And yet in Christ Jesus, we are accepted as we are. We have nothing to hide. And yet, at the same time, we have nothing to prove because Jesus paid it all. It is done. It is finished. You cannot add to it. You cannot take away from it. And when you have that kind of security, it's something like the relationship that a father and a son possess. Whoa, I didn't expect that emotion to come out just now. But it's something like that that absolute security that a child has with a good, loving father, that when he asks, the father hears. That the father has and wants blessing and goodness for his children. Do you know that? I wonder when you cry out to God, when you say like the psalmist says, how long, O Lord, how long, O Lord, do you expect mercy? Because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, we should always and only expect mercy from God. Always and only. But see, this can only happen through an encounter with Jesus Christ. And this is what happens to Saul. This is a weird thing, right? But what's proof that Saul has been radically transformed? It's that he is praying. Jesus says to Ananias, hey, Ananias, I need you to go down to the street. It's called street, and I need you to go and Pray for this guy, Saul. Saul? No. Are you kidding? God, don't you know? Don't you know about this guy? He doesn't. By the way, God doesn't know. Uh, Just kidding. He does know. And he says, yeah, I I know. But check it out. He's praying. Ananias is probably like, he's, God, he's praying? Are you kidding me? Like, that's your proof? See, Saul of Tarsus would have prayed like you have never seen right? You and I pray things like this. Bless this mess, or thank you, God, for this day. We pray that nobody gets hurt. Amen, right? My little girl, Evelyn, she's three, and she's like, God, thank you for this day. Thank you for sin. Call us if you need us. Amen. (laughs) I don't know if she says call us, but she says, if you need us for anything, let us know. Yeah, right? And sometimes our prayers are like that, right? They're just like, they're short, but Paul, or excuse me, Saul of Tarsus, right? We're talking long, focused times of prayer, devotion to the God of Israel. Three times a day, this guy would pray. Devoted, scriptural, rooted in the Psalms, right? But there is something obviously unique about the way in which Saul prays now. What is it? Remember that story that Jesus tells about the uh, the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Two men went up to pray. 
right? One stands there and says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I tithe, I fast, I do all of these things. I'm amazing, God, right? And then the other man stands there and he says he can't even lift up his head. And this was the Jewish way of, the Jewish custom to pray was like this, actually. But this man does this. God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus asked the question, which one went away justified? Which one is justified? See, Saul is now praying for the first time as one who is indebted to God. A debtor to mercy. The biggest legalist, the most self-righteous, harshest person you've ever met is for the first time praying as a debtor to the mercy of God, as one who has received undeserved favor and grace. Do you guys see? This is the mark of Christianity, that we know that we have the favor of God, that we are beloved children of God, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord, that when we call on the Father, we should always and only expect mercy, just as a good father gives good gifts to his children. Remember that passage in the prophet where God says, can a nursing mother forget her child, her nursing child, when her milk is coming in? You know about that. You know about the connection there that happens, the intimacy that happens between a mother and her child when her milk is coming in. God says, even if that were to happen, I would never forget you. See, I have inscribed your name on the palms of my hands. The work of the cross is proof that we will never be forgotten that God's heart towards us is one of mercy and grace. Brennan Manning says this. He says, define yourself radically as one beloved by God. This is the true self, and every other identity is illusion. Do you believe that? This is a truth that we need to work into our hearts. We need to drown out the condemning voices, right? The self-justification, the justification of others. Am I living up? Am I doing this? Am I doing that? No, if you are in Christ Jesus, define yourself as one radically loved by God. Every other identity is illusion. Every other suggestion is a lie from the devil or from your self-righteous self. You have been clothed in the righteousness of God by the work of Jesus Christ. You are a child, and there is nothing, as I said earlier, that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Amen, amen, right? So this is the first result of an encounter with Jesus, a new identity, a new way of operating towards God. And now the second thing we see in the text is that you get a whole new community. So you don't just get a new identity, a new way of relating to God, a new father, but you get a whole new community. We see this, right? Saul is called brother by Ananias, and he's received this way. He lays hands on him, which is a, a picture of association, right? Like, yeah, like you do in a picture, you know? Like, we're together, we're, we're friends, or we're associates, right? We're in this together, partnership, right? Lays hands on him. Saul is baptized into Jesus in the community of Jesus' followers. And we should understand baptism in the book of Acts not just as a theological understanding of identity in Jesus, death and resurrection, but also in terms of allegiance. That's actually how the book of Acts uses it, 
right? Baptized out of the world into a new community, pledging allegiance, not to the flag people, but to the kingdom of God and to its king. And that is what Saul is doing. He is baptized into this new community. He, jo- he leaves his old community, right? And he joins a new community. So with us, we must leave our old community. And this doesn't mean that we cut off all of our ties, right, with the world, or we cut off all of our ties with those who are not, like, oh, I'm a Christian now, so I can't hang out with non-Christians. No, 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 right? Jesus says this in John 17. I don't pray that you take them out of the world. No, we need to be in the world. We need to be salt and light. But we need a new community to immerse ourselves in so that we might learn the new way of operating towards God with other brothers and sisters, that we might learn the new dynamics of the kingdom of God and what it means to operate with one another. Now, see, if I don't need to justify myself before you, before God, I'm free. I'm free. It doesn't matter what you think about me. So you know what? I can tell you the truth. Hey, you know what? Like the Bible says, like, the body isn't meant for sexual immorality, but it's for the Lord. So like shacking up with your girlfriend, like that doesn't honor the Lord. You're not following Jesus. And I can tell you that, and I'm not afraid that I'm gonna lose our relationship. I'm gonna lose our friendship because I have a security from Jesus. But at the same time, I know that I'm a sinner. I know that I've received the gospel through grace. And so I'm gonna do it in a humble way, not like, oh, jerkwad, what are you doing sleeping around? You know, it's like, sometimes we just like, what is going through our brains, right? There go I, yet for the grace of God, right? So we do it in humility, and that's what Paul says in Galatians, right? If you're spiritual, restore someone in the spirit of humility, right? Keeping watch over yourselves as well, lest you also be overtaken by sin. The gospel, only the gospel can do this, you guys. It can give you this incredible security and at the same time, this incredible humility. And it changes the way that we operate with one another. No longer are Christians or our coworkers or friends or neighbors or spouses or children, people to be competed with, people that might be better than us. They're brothers or sisters to be loved, to be encouraged. They can love and encourage us. They can support us when we're down, right? We can weep with those who weep. We can rejoice with those who rejoice. When you're hurting and I'm abounding, I'm blessed, then I can bless you and I can help you, right? Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The scripture says, receive one another as God has received you, excuse me, as Jesus Christ has forsaked you or received you for the glory of God. It's in there, trust me. Um, Yeah. What is this guy talking about, Brian? Okay. The church becomes your family as you all submit to God as loving Father and as Jesus as Lord and Savior. You must join a church community. Now I say this because there's all this idea this day, this day and age. Like, oh yeah, you know, you just be a Christian and follow Jesus all your life. This is an American idea. There is no such thing as a Lone Ranger, right? Paul the Apostle, he goes to prison and he still is rolling with a posse. He's like, oh yeah, bring me my clothes and bring me those books and bring me this and bring me some meals and come and visit me. And it says like when he was in Rome and in prison that people just came in and out and visited him every day. Paul was not a Lone Ranger Christian and neither should you be. Nobody can be a Lone Ranger Christian and actually grow, actually develop. Again, it kind of comes back to that Stepford God idea, right? Like, you'll never grow in Christian maturity unless you have a group of believers around you to hold you accountable, to encourage you, to pick you up when you're down, that you can encourage. Right? I, I can't tell you, actually, when I used to work here years ago, and um, I had this experience, I have time. No, I don't have time, but I'm gonna tell it anyway. Um, but I had this experience where I was like going to Bible studies every night. 
I was meeting and, and doing prayer meetings with my friends afterwards. We would like, you know, everybody pull out their guitars. You know, we're doing like the whole hippie tent thing, like, you know, Maranatha, like all this kind of stuff. Like we're trying to be like super spiritual. And I have this responsibility on Sunday mornings that I come down and I pray with people. And I remember one Sunday morning, like I'm suited up, you know, and just feeling like so stupid wearing that monkey suit, right? And I'm there and I'm like talking to my dad, like, I can't, I can't do anything right now. Teen angst, right? Um, I just, I'm so empty and I have nothing to give. And I've been reading my Bible. I've been praying. I've been doing all this stuff. And only my dad could talk to me like this and say this to me. He's like, you big baby, go out there and pray for some people. God will meet you. And I'm like, (laughs) jerk, right? And at the time I thought like, what an insensitive jerk, you know? (laughs) And sure enough, you know what? I stood here, and it was so funny. The first lady that came up and prayed with me, I remember her name to this day in her face, Maria. And she's like, great, how old are you? And I'm like, oh, lady, if you only knew, you know? Like, and uh, I was like, well, you know, it doesn't really matter how old you are. You know, Jeremiah was 17, you know, kind of like, what's your prayer request? You know, just tell me. And um, anyway, long story short, the things that she asked for prayer for, like, all of the scripture I've been reading, all of the prayers I've been praying, everything that I have been laboring in, it came alive, you guys. It came out. You know, the gifts and callings of God happen not in a vacuum, not in a closet. Don't go off by yourself in your prayer closet and figure out what your spiritual gift is. It'll never happen. The gifts of God are for the church, and they happen in community. And the word of God comes alive in community, right? We're the people of God. And that's what happened to Saul. He joined the church and he never left it. So you get a new identity, you get a new community, two more, you get a new message and you get a whole new reproach. Quickly, after Saul's conversion, he immediately preached that Jesus is the son of God, that Jesus is the Christ. He says later that the people in this region were saying this about him. He preached the faith he once tried to destroy. Now, Paul, we need to understand that Paul doesn't just preach Jesus now instead of the law, right? It's not like, oh, okay, yeah, I had like, you know, I tweaked it a little bit and I realized it's Jesus. And so, okay, you know, let's just kind of adapt the curriculum now, right? The idea in Christianity is that Jesus has become so awe-inspiring, so life-giving and glorious to us, right? It's everything. You have discovered the key for what it means to be human. You have discovered the secret of the universe. Remember that book that came out a couple years ago? It's still at Barnes & Noble, The Secret, right? And there's, you know, like every 10 years, like a myriad of books like that come out. What's the secret? What's it really all about? What's this? What's that? What's this? What's that? You know, I was just hearing all this stuff going on on the East Coast, people saying, there's no cure for racism. There's no cure for this. Oh, yes, there is. Oh, yes, there is. There is a whole new way to be human. A new way to think, a new way to act, a new way to speak, a new way to live our lives through the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We can change. And see, this is what, this is what, this is what Paul's message was, you guys. It wasn't just that, like, hey, receive Jesus into your heart and go to heaven one day and just tell a few people about it. No, the kingdom of God now, child of God now, a whole new message about the fullness of life, about peace, about rest, about hope, about joy in the Holy Spirit, the kingdom of God now in our midst. See, that's what it is, right? Jesus. And so when we understand that Jesus is the key that unlocks all the promises of God, that it unpacks everything in this world, this is my Father's world. 
the hymn writer said. When you understand that, oh my gosh, it changes everything. And then all of a sudden you begin to say, how can we not make this good news known? The good news is this, that God is restoring and recreating all things by the power of Jesus Christ. He's going to make everything new. There's going to be no more curse. There's going to be no more sin. And the glory of God will flood the earth as the waters cover the sea. God will be all in all. He will fill up the creation like a vessel with his glory, and it will overflow with the glory of God. That is where everything is going. That is what our hearts long for, is the presence and person of God. And we have that in Jesus Christ. And when you have that encounter with Jesus, you understand that. That doesn't mean that everything is a mountaintop experience, and like, right? But it even makes the mundane great, redeemable, because he walks with us. And it even makes the most terrible things comforting because we feel the nail-scarred hand holding ours as we walk through trials and fires and floods, right? How can we not tell everyone about this amazing, gracious, and unfailing love and acceptance that we have found through Jesus? The message of Jesus became Paul's life. His very breath was employed with the message of Jesus. It became his all. Now, let me just say this. I do not think you can truly do this unless you know yourself to be one who is brought from darkness into God's marvelous light. Unless you understand the depths that Jesus had to go to for you and for me. Unless you understand personally, as the modern hymn says, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. Unless you know the brutal weight and shame of your own sin and you have begun to fathom the glory of Jesus Christ and the depths of agony that he was plunged into to forgive you of your sin and make you a chosen child of God to the degree that you know that, that you are more sinful and flawed in yourself than you ever dared believe, yet at the same time you are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than you ever dared hope, to the degree that you know that, you will take up the name, the message of salvation, and the proclamation of the gospel. I, I exhort you, Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa, read the word of God, but live in the gospel. Marinate in the gospel. What God has done for your soul in Jesus Christ. Live there at the foot of the cross. It's not, you know, linear, right? Like, oh, cross, you know, maybe rapture somewhere in here, and then, you know, millennial reign, and then new heaven, new earth. It's just all deep, deep down. Just root yourself at the foot of the cross. Live there. Finally, a new reproach, because I'm over time. Jesus said of Saul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. The persecutor now is the persecuted. The one who hunted for Christians is now hunted as a Christian. The irony of God's work, right? Saul has to flee for his life. The same people that killed Stephen are now after him. Now, this is the last and final evidence of conversion that we see in this chapter, right? And it's probably the most unwanted, right? It's like, that we might suffer with him. Like, how many of you have that on your wall, you know? <laughs> that I might suffer with Christ. That I might bear his reproach. Like, my grandma knitted that for me. Isn't that nice? You're like, no. What? All right? Like, no, 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 I'm more than a conqueror through Jesus Christ, you know? I can do all things. That's the kind of stuff that we hold on to, right? But if we have been truly converted, we will bear the name, we will bear the shame, 
we will bear the sufferings of Christ. I was talking with a friend the other day, and quickly, he was just telling me he was in a coffee shop talking to a friend. They were catching up. He found out that this person was a Christian the moment they said the name of Jesus. You know, record stops. Like, what did you just say? You know, and everybody's like, uh. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh, yeah, Jesus. Like, I have to talk in hushed tones. The name of Jesus bears a reproach. It bears shame. I was an alcoholic. I was an abuser. I was a chauvinist. I was a pervert. Uh, I was a racist bigot. I was, you know, I was looking to fight anyone and everyone. But Jesus came in and changed my life. Whoa, bro. What's wrong with you, man? You're so extreme. Back up. Back up off me. You know, like, and you're like, wait, what? What what did I say? You know, just all that Jesus stuff, right? And I'm not exaggerating. This is not a straw man. This is actually how it is. You can say whatever you want in my city. Oh, I'm a Buddhist, Catholic, um, uh, Hindu, uh, and I'm, you know, like, I'm, I'm kind of getting into Rastafarian a little bit because I love the music, you know, bro? Like, and you can do whatever you want. And people are like, you're so spiritual. That's so good for you. Wow. But you say, oh, I'm, a, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Whoa, 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 whoa. Back down, you know, cool off. You know, that's, that's really like exclusive stuff. It's very bigoted, right? And we're getting more and more into this, and it's not going to change. It's going to get worse. It really is. So this is not an easy task. The gospel is an offense. The name of Jesus bears a reproach and all those who follow him will bear it as well. And I'm not kidding. I mean, you can read the news. I mean, people are losing jobs over this. Oh, what do you think about people of different, you know, sexual orientation? You think that that's sin? You think that that's not God's best for them? Okay, well, you're bigoted, you're racist. And so like you can't be uh, chief over this fire department anymore. Or you can't be sheriff of this county anymore. This kind of stuff is happening more and more, you guys. Losing privilege and power and all these types of things because of an association with Jesus Christ, because of our religious beliefs. And it's gonna happen more and more. But here is the point, right? And I hope that this is driven home with you, and I promise I'm done after this. Jesus bore your reproach, your shame, your guilt, my secret sin, he bore it not in private, but openly. He bore it on Calvary's tree in nakedness. A hymn writer says, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place he in condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. What a savior. He was crucified for my sin, for your sin. Will we not bear the shame of the one who bore all of our sin and shame? Will we receive only the good from God and not adversity? Will we be ashamed of the one who is broken for us? Again, this is no easy task. The world's opinions and judgments are so powerful. Their agenda is so incredibly strong, which is why we must again identify ourselves as dearly loved children of God for Jesus' sake. Ones who have received God's love in full acceptance. If we have that, we have everything. We have a security that no one else could possibly offer us and no one can take away from us. And at the same time, a humility because it's a gift from God. It is only as we know that truth at the center of our lives that we will be able to bear this weight. But as the scripture tells us, if we suffer with him, we will bear his, if we bear his reproach, we will also reign with him. If we suffer with him, we will also be glorified with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. But if we blow it, if we're unfaithful, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. 
Jesus, I pray that this word, by the presence and work of the Holy Spirit, would drive deep into our hearts. Lord, if we have been operating toward you in our own self-righteousness, Lord, I know, I know from experience that there is no rest, there is no peace, there is no joy, there is no hope, there's no consistency, there's no security. And I pray, Lord, that this word of truth from your word would grab hold of our hearts and would cause us to run to Jesus. Jesus himself said, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes might be saved. And so we pray, Lord, that there would be many this morning who would look to Jesus and Jesus alone for their righteousness, would no longer operate according to their self-justification or the justification of others, but long only for the justification of God in Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that they would begin to experience that peace and that rest from the finished work of Jesus. They would begin to experience that hope that is eternal in the heavens, that is alive and working today. We pray that they would experience that Abba cry from the Spirit. They would know you as Father. They would know themselves as beloved children of God. Lord, we pray for those of us, Lord, who are believers, Lord, but we have forgotten how loved we are. Lord, we have given up on or waned in identifying with you, in being in your community. We have lost focus of the gospel in its life-giving importance to our lives. We have been ashamed of you. Would you bring us back to the cross? Would you bring us back to the only one who knows us completely and loves us completely? Would you bring us back to the love that will not let us go? And would you restore our fellowship with you this morning, God? We pray all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.